And you realize like just as much as you're being instrumentalized by the system, we're all kind of using each other in this three-way circus. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, dozens of the starriest art dealers on the planet are packing up their wares and flocking to Hollywood, hoping to make inroads with the city's growing pool of art-collecting celebrities, media moguls, and tech impresarios by participating in the second edition of Freeze LA, the art fair taking place in the old Paramount Studios. But despite the massive amounts of money flowing through Hollywood, Los Angeles has long proved a frustrating target for art dealers, who first had trouble turning matinee idols into art connoisseurs and then hit a wall with the moneyed tech scene. One operation, however, that seems to have figured it out is the small homegrown gallery Various Small Fires. Founded in 2012 by the husband and wife team of Esther Kim Varrett and Joseph Varrett, the gallery today sits in a former film production office on Highland Avenue that has been sleekly overhauled by the in-demand architects Johnston Markley. Widely referred to by its acronym, VSF is a small gallery of only 12 multi-generational artists, but it seems to have an outsized claim on the attention span of LA's collectors, minting one art star after another who draw massive waiting lists for their work. So what's in VSF's special sauce? Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Esther Kim Verrett to talk about the gallery, which she actually likes to think of as a startup. So thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Esther. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. So, Esther, you founded your gallery in 2012 in Venice Beach. What what were you doing in the time leading up to that moment? Well, after I graduated from Yale, I actually spent a couple of years working at some larger galleries in New York City. I worked at Paula Cooper. David Jocelyn, who is my advisor at Yale, actually helped me get that first job as a receptionist at Paula Cooper. (laughs) And I was there for a few months before I kind of quickly sidestepped down the street in Chelsea to Petzl. And so I actually got a start early on by observing other galleries and working at other galleries. And then I started grad school at Columbia and Mm. met a couple of friends there. And we had decided to um, open our own gallery. (laughs) Somewhat foolishly, I think, looking back now. But one of my partners actually still owns and operates that gallery from the same space that we started. I don't know if you've ever watched the television show Girls. Of course. Yes, of course. Okay. So there is an Asian American girl in that show that starts her own gallery. And we just confirmed a couple of months ago that that was based off of me. (laughs) (laughs) And so actually that's where I got my start. And then very soon after we opened, the recession hit. But actually right before the recession hit, we started having some problems. You know, when you are young and you start a gallery with two other partners, it's actually pretty challenging making decisions and coming to (laughs) any solid buildable conclusions on how to run and operate a gallery. And so we broke up the band right before the recession hit, which was a blessing in disguise for me because it helped me sit out a couple of those recession years. And that's when I started doing my PhD work at Columbia. And then I was also doing a lot of curatorial work for Performa before I moved to LA. 
Hmm. And Perform, of course, is the performance art biennial that takes place in New York every two years. And I believe that was actually how you met your husband. Is that correct? That is correct. My husband, Joseph, was on the board of Performa and we were on a committee together to help with the gala that year and um, sat next to me and started calling me after that. I had a boyfriend at that time already. He was, you know, he was incredibly persistent and here we are now. So Sounds like a good good salesman to have on your force. <laughs> he, he's not necessarily a salesman with me in the business, but um, he is incredibly persistent and meticulous and is a great planner on how to get things done. So your gallery is really a family affair and you run the dealing operation and your husband works as the CFO. His background is not really in art so much as it's in digital media. He founded a multi-platform video startup, sold it to NBC for reportedly millions of dollars. And this was, of course, right before the economic crisis hit in 2008. And since then has worked with the gallery and also as an angel investor for early stage ventures in the field. So what kind of skill sets does he bring to the gallery that your typical gallery might not avail itself of? So Joseph, in every sense of a startup, does act truly like a CFO, but also he acts kind of like the in-house lawyer. Doesn't have a legal background, but his entire family (laughs) has legal backgrounds and he very much is used to forming a lot of business transactions or partnerships and consignments. You should see the look on his face when I first started the gallery and I was showing him some of the consignments that were going back and forth between us and other galleries. (laughs) And he was really flabbergasted that these were actually considered terms, legal terms that we would abide by. And then what I had to turn around and explain to him was that, you know, the art gallery business is such that even putting things in writing like a consignment like this is really a handshake on paper. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that they on purpose are written often so that they can be upheld. (laughs) And so I think our consignments, the VSF consignments are written very much with not only protecting us, but also the other parties involved, especially our artists. I think that Joseph has brought that level of acumen. And also because he has spent so much time and continues to sit on boards of startups and angel invest in all sorts of different kinds of new business operations here in California, I think he does have a sense of how a business can run. And a lot of what I have spent the past four or five years really is unlearning what I had learned mm-hmm. in New York on how to run a gallery and adapting it in ways that felt much more appropriate for my generation and the generation right under me. We have players in the gallery that are a part of the team that feel just as important as I do or as Joseph is. I mean, my director here, Sarah Hantman, feels like she's a vital force and we treat her that way. And so does our exhibition coordinator and so does our archivist and so does our staff in Korea. So I think it has enabled us to really prepare ourselves um, for a new way of operating a gallery, which I think will contribute to the longevity of the operation that we've built. So within this new framework that you're bringing to the gallery operation, how is it that you see yourself as less of a traditional art gallerist than an entrepreneur in the year 2020? Well, 
I'll put it this way. I think in, for my generation, the role of a gallery is in probably the most vital element um, to an artist's career. And when you realize the gravity of the fact that you are taking care of the livelihoods of and careers of, of a number of people, you want to do it right. And you want to do it in ways that will protect the artists that have trusted you to take on their work. And I think that you do have to treat it as a business because it is a business. If you want to stay open, then you have to run it by the numbers. You have to do an analysis. You have to do quarterly meetings, which we do at the gallery with all of our staff. Listen, I've worked with a number of artists now that are in their 80s. Mm-hmm. And they have gallerists that they have been working with uh, for the past 50 or 60 years that have never made a consignment with them. And if you understand how the business of it works and how insurance works, there's so many reasons why to make a consignment. So many reasons to, to draw clear lines and rules on how you're going to interact and how you're going to kind of grow a relationship. And I think that the sooner that you establish rules for each other, then I think the chances of, of the relationships going on for much longer are much higher. I think that the idea of running a gallery in a different way than the way it has been done before is very appealing these days. Dealers now have to have their very fancy galleries that they put on their shows in and also simultaneously travel around the world continuously putting up these temporary booths where they have these mini kind of virtual galleries. So it's creating a lot of stress in the system. And what do you think is the way to innovate and evolve the traditional gallery model? So I think the gallery came of age in an era where you had to be everywhere at once. And I think traditionally the gallery system has been built with a person's name on the door. And I think very early on, I realized that I didn't want my name on the door because I wanted more people than just me expanding the gallery (laughs) and moving it. And I asked myself, how could we create a brand where the brand was more important than the individuals? Mm. Even calling the gallery various small fires really then enabled us to spread out, to also take on staff that we treat like partners, we profit share like partners Mm. across the board. I take less for the sake of being able to share more. And I think that felt like really the most effective way to imagine how to grow the gallery in the 21st century. And I, together with all of my staff, built an 80-page Various Small Fires manual Hmm. where it detailed every aspect of how to run this gallery that could be replicated in another city. Now, it's interesting that you have a Various Small Fires manual because your gallery is called Various Small Fires after an artist book that the artist Ed Ruscha made in the 1960s called Various Small Fires and Milk. You have this very vibrant community of collectors that is supporting the gallery, coming to your events, purchasing your artworks, or at least trying to purchase your artworks. What are these collectors like in LA? What kind of generation are you finding yourself dealing with? And how has this been changing over the course of your gallery's existence? So when I first moved here, I went to a lot of dinners. My husband is friends with a lot of movie producers, actors, and we would go 
to these dinners and everybody would be talking to me, asking me questions about street art. (laughs) That was the thing that everybody was buying. I would, of course, politely decline because I don't know that much about street art. But I do know that historically it was very important to Los Angeles and the concept of culture here. In the past five years, all of those collectors have kind of switched over. And I think the rise of the contemporary art scene here and the mediatization of that has changed the attitudes greatly of of my generation of collectors here. Mm. You know, it's interesting. We have a lot of agents that are collectors. And if you think about what they do, they're talent seekers. So the contemporary art market is actually the perfect place for them because they love (laughs) finding talent and they like getting in on talent and getting in early and all of those things. And And I think it makes a lot of sense that WME bought freeze. I think there's actually a lot of synergy in that. We have some actors and, you know, producers and people of that like, lawyers Mm. all getting into it. And there has been a title shift, I would say, in the last four years in particular. And it's been awesome. Freeze coming here has been timed exactly with the rise of that change of tide. Mm-hmm. I mean, my my one kind of hope is that this would then translate into more institutional support for the local institutions here. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if most of the collectors here especially the young collectors are thinking about that. And so a huge part of what I feel like my role is, is when I work on institutional collections is to match make institutions with collectors, Mm -hmm. kind of brokering partnerships between collectors and institutions while stabilizing (laughs) the markets of of our artists (laughs) by getting them into institutions and, and figuring out ways to make that happen financially. That is a mark of a mature collector somebody who is on museum boards is patronizing museum causes because they know that if they're doing that, then dealers like you who are putting down a hard wall on people who are just trying to buy the hottest art, all of a sudden look at this collector in a different way. So if there's anything I can say to the listeners in the Hollywood industry out there who are hearing this podcast, get on museum boards (laughs) because that is going to help in a big way. I mean, does that sound true to you, Esther? Well, you have to be skeptical of that too. There are a lot of people joining acquisition committees, boards, a lot of collectors so that they can get access. And often $15,000 to join the acquisition committee at LACMA is a very cheap buy-in for a credential Mm -hmm. for them to get access to work. Institutions know their collections are starting to become transformed Mm -hmm. by market interests precisely because of these collectors um, that are also infiltrating themselves. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. You want them to support institutions because institutions need it. I think the takeaway is that when I talk to a young collector here in LA who comes in and says, hey, do you think this painting is a good bang for my buck? (laughs) You have to say, listen, it's great that you're interested in buying something that you feel and you hope and wish will accrue in value. But you can also figure out ways to think holistically on how to help this artist on every level by giving institutionally and all those things. Um, When these laws were written in the 60s, it was kind of the beginning of the formation of the modern museum. 
this is what I wrote my dissertation on, by the way. Um, And so I I spent a lot of time kind of thinking about what the modern museum in America is, what the different funding structures are, um, and what the long-term implications of that are. The system now has been built up to a place where the gallery component becomes kind of like the key (laughs) go-between between the institutions and between the collectors. And again, you know, I've collaborated with a lot of other galleries that are of a different generation than me and older. These kinds of new transactions, like two for one, um, where a collector buys two, gives one, Mm -hmm. all that stuff is still so new to them. This is what I was born into. You know, this is what the gallery was born into. So this is very native to us, understanding how to build market stability around an artist by doing these kinds of transactions. And you realize like just as much as you're being instrumentalized by the system, we're all kind of using each other in this three-way circus. Mm -hmm. That's just the kind of outline of our era and how the art world exists now. Well, I I would imagine what people object to is when the money actually gets accrued by the, the collector and doesn't go down to the studio. Is that something that you're seeing developing out in LA where there's all these speculative people who are getting in and trying to really maximize their return while minimizing the return for the galleries and the artists? I don't think it's just collectors in LA. I think it's truly an international market that's, that's acting that way. I feel like there is no evil in the art world anymore because based on old rules, everything would be an evil, right? But we can't, we're not functioning under those old rules anymore. And I think that we should just count our blessings that the art market as we know it in the West continues to grow and people continue outside of the West even, continues to invest in it and continues to help prop it up. You opened a gallery offshoot last year in Seoul, which is where I believe your family is from. Yes. I am the daughter of immigrants in America. I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. But my family, my parents have always maintained their roots to Korea. And I spent all of my summers going back to Korea growing up. So I am fluent in the language and I am familiar culturally. I think it was maybe four years ago, I really started thinking about what the next step would be for the gallery. And I thought a lot about where I'd come from. So when I was growing up in in Dallas, I didn't really understand where I fit in as far as being Asian American, because it felt very Eurocentric to me and very Amerocentric. And I am American, but it wasn't really actually until I moved to California where I started seeing generationally where we were going to go and how the Asian market was going to be so important to us in the next 20 years. Hmm. And it wasn't really until I moved to California and I opened the VSF LA space here that I really started understanding the strength of my own identity. It really was taking that strength and spending the next few years trying to figure out how to build a bridge. Korea has the highest per capita of collectors in Asia. Korea also has 0% import tax and 0% sales tax on art, which makes it very unique. Korea is not a country with that many natural resources. So the government very early on after the Korean War, even when I was in the 80s and 90s, they really stress culture and growing culture 
and technology, which we are now seeing. Hmm. Up until now, I think a lot of Koreans had looked at art as an investment and had really only primarily invested in blue chip art, I would Mm -hmm. say. But what I also noticed in the last few years is that there were a lot of galleries, outposts opening up in Korea, Lehman Mopin, Pace, Periton, as you know, which are amazing galleries and incredibly collaborative with also what we do. But also I realized there weren't any galleries of our generation who were specialists in this other market that were kind of puncturing and setting down roots there. And so I felt like it was important for us to make the move now. And I do think right now we are the only emerging gallery in the States to have done that. So one of the few things I know about Korea is that there is a very well-established corporate collecting tradition. But what seems to be happening now is that this is really diversifying with a young generation and nowhere can this be seen more vividly than in the unexpected link that is popping up between K-pop superstars and the contemporary art world. For instance, I've heard that one very famous K-pop star, T.O.P., actually started coming to your gallery a few months ago when he was doing his mandatory military service and has since become a major supporter of the gallery who's started out collecting sneakers, I think, and then has transitioned into collecting fine objects of art. Uh, Well, you have to also remember that T.O.P. is in his early 30s, which again, generationally is where we are. And also just as a side note, a lot of the collectors that are cropping up in Asia in general are my generation. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes sense for them and for us that we're growing together. But I think that also the way that the gallery program has been built, I mean, you spoke about kind of how we have a lot of quote unquote hot artists. When Zombie formalism was happening, for example, where it was very white male centric abstract art. We were not working with those artists. Mm -hmm. We were working with women of color. We were working with artists that were working out problems that were troubling them about the environment. Um, about climate change, like the Harrisons, who were considered the founders of the ecological art movement. Artists like Liz Magic Laser, who was breaking down kind of what was happening in American politics and the systems of of control. Mm -hmm. And we were really focusing on things that felt really relevant to us topically for our generation. It's a kind of storytelling that I think feels really relevant right now, especially in this era. And I joke around that... I think maybe the gallery program wouldn't be as popular Mm -hmm. if Trump hadn't have become president. (laughs) (laughs) So a new artist that you are going to be introducing into this whole art market, art world slipstream this week during Freeze LA is Kalita Rawls, who is a fascinating painter who specializes in these photorealistic portraits of Black Americans submerged in this kind of otherworldly, beautiful, aqueous, watery situation. So this is not only the first time that 
you've shown her work, it's also the first time that she's ever had a major solo show anywhere. So how did you come to discover this artist and and what is it that really draws you to what she's doing? We have the habit of asking our own artists often if there are artists that we should look at. So Kalita is a good friend of Diedrich Bracken's and I find that that's been the most effective way for us to grow our own artist community. And Diedrich gave me a list of six artists and Kalita was the first person from that list that immediately caught my eye. So she's here in Inglewood. And I went with my director, Sarah, and we were totally blown away. She's in her mid-40s, has three kids, <laughs> had never had a solo show, commercial solo show before. But also the timing was interesting because she had just done the cover for ta Coates' new book, Great. The Water Dancer. And that was about to be released in the fall. And so we kind of had an intuition that a lot of people would start paying attention to her work because of the book. But we went by our instinct, offered her a show and fast forward, you know, nine months later, here we are. Hmm. But she's a photorealist painter. I think that's important. She was trained as a abstract painter when she went to grad school. She went to NYU. They told her that photorealist painting was a dead end. Anyways, five years ago, she started just doing the paintings that she wanted to do. Hmm. I think photorealism is definitely going to have a moment in the next couple of years. And I think that Kalita's voice is an incredibly important one in that kind of return. Hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are excited about our work. A lot of collectors of color um, in particular (laughs) have been supporting our work for a while, which is so important. Also for Kalita to feel like her own community has been supporting her for this time now. But it's kind of expanded really quickly, the interest into Asia, (laughs) I mean, everywhere. So Hmm. we're excited. And I, I think you'll start seeing her work being circulated pretty heavily everywhere. So how does she feel? This is a big moment for her. I think her reaction has been to just work harder, which Mm. is, I think, the appropriate reaction. Our job has just been to remind her to stop when she feels really tired, (laughs) to not burn herself out. I think every single one of us feels invested in, in what we're doing individually, wants to bust their ass off to do um, their best. And I think we're often in danger of burning ourselves out. And so I have a mantra. I say this all the time. I'm like, listen, we're not, it's not an ER room. There are no lives to save here. Like we've Mm. got to just chill out. I think that is a great note to end on because I think everybody who's going to be coming to LA and freeze LA could do very well by following that advice and, and chilling out, enjoying the weather and just kind of marveling at what an incredible milieu this is to partake in. So that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. Thank you very much for joining us, Esther. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 